Richard Garfield once said, A game without a metagame is like an idealized object in physics. It may be a useful construct, but it doesn't really exist. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about the metagame. So, what are we talking about when we talk about the metagame? Are we talking about that great board game, the metagame? No. Actually, when we talk about metagames and metagaming, we are talking about the game outside the game. All the activity that takes place outside the game that might have some influence on our decisions and experiences within the game. Metagaming can also be talked about as, how does everyone else play this game? How is everyone else who is currently playing this game playing this game. It's quite an interesting topic. Unfortunately, metagaming kind of has a bit of a stigma around it when it comes to role players. In role-playing games, metagaming is often seen as a horrible, nasty, awful thing that you should never, ever, ever do. Yeah, mostly because when we think of metagaming and role-playing games, what we're typically referring to is merely one type of metagaming, that is acting on knowledge your character does not have, which is the most common meaning. And I think that that does a disservice to the concept of metagaming and a disservice to that concept itself. We'll get into that in a second. Metagaming, to me, is not inherently bad, but it can be, within the realm of a role-playing game, a faux pas, and it's spoken of that way. It's it's like power gaming. And as I've already mentioned in our very first episode on power gaming, it's still a form of engagement with the game. It demonstrates that you are invested in and interested in the outcome of the game, and it shows that you want to play the game. And in a sense, that makes it a good thing. And we just need to rein in the aspects of it that are causing difficulty. So there's a few specific types of metagaming that are bad. A lot of times when people think about metagaming, they go, oh, well, your character wouldn't know that you need to show Medusa their reflection to get her to turn herself to stone. That isn't really much of a problem because it's working on the expectation of the Medusa. It's working on the player's knowledge of the lore behind the Medusa. And moreover, you're the DM. Maybe this Medusa isn't vulnerable to that. A major thing about this is the fact that if you are playing with these tropes and these expectations, what you are actually banking on is the players to recognize them. You wouldn't put Medusa in your game if you didn't want Medusa to be Medusa. And simply asking the players to disregard the fact that they know who or what Medusa is, is not really a good way to handle the problem of the player characters being challenged by an encounter with Medusa. Really, when it comes down to it, it's still your responsibility to make the game interesting and enjoyable. And when you're introducing these elements, you're doing it as a way to make your game interesting and enjoyable by calling to something the players already know. Asking them to disregard that knowledge is paradoxical to that. It's you undermining the very thing that you are demonstrably doing on purpose. Now, another thing that could happen when a player metagames is they could be going on previous experience with this DM. If you as a DM have a tendency to turn every single NPC that the group 
becomes attached to into a villain, well, they might start acting hostile toward any NPC that comes up to the party and starts acting nice. Meanwhile, if you turn all of the NPCs that the player characters get attached to into liabilities, you might find your player characters having their friendships with NPCs at arm's length to avoid that sort of attachment that would not only cause them to have an emotional reaction when that character is inevitably killed, kidnapped, or otherwise injured, but also it reduces the number of points of impact that you can use on them against them. And again, you're doing a disservice to your game by creating these sort of systems and making this the case. The solution is, in part, to try to shake up your patterns and expectations. If every single NPC that you introduce to the party does a face-heel turn partway through, then maybe your writing as a DM does need to, to grow. Maybe this snotty prince is just a snotty prince who really likes the characters. He doesn't need to turn out to be evil. You could have the obviously evil vizier turn out to be evil. You could have the obviously evil vizier turn out to be good, once again, to turn the trope on its head. Let's actually try to shake things up a little. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean throwing all these tropes out the window. Tropes are tropes for a reason. We have these expectations inbuilt into the stories we tell, and the reason we have that is because these stories work. They resonate. And when you have that resonance, it really does you a massive disservice to try to cut it off just because it's predictable. Don't assume that predictability is bad. Don't assume that the players being aware of something outside the game and that influencing your player characters is inherently bad. It's not necessarily. It's actually a really interesting thing that you can work off of and if you grow within that expectation, I think you'll find that your games are made better for it. I can already hear some of you saying, well, what if the player characters know what's coming up in the module? What if they've read ahead in the published adventure we're going through and know the exact tactics to use to defeat the enemy? All right, number one, that's actually cheating. And this is, this is I'm going to rant about this. It really bothers me that some people cannot make the distinction between knowing something outside the game and explicitly cheating. Now, in a single-player game experience, it doesn't matter what you know. If you're playing a video game or something and you decide you want to spoil the whole game for yourself, that is entirely your business. Unless you have some agreement to play through this game fairly with another player, it is up to you to decide your level of engagement with material that would make you aware with the outside of the game. However, unless it is an explicit agreement between you and your DM, the assumption is that an adventure module is for the DM to prepare their game. It is no different than stealing and looking through your DM's notes. If you have agreed to play through an adventure module and you have already secretly read it. That is actually cheating. It is not just metagaming. There is a big distinction there. Metagaming is again things like the Medusa. It's part of the cultural zeitgeist. We're aware of it because it is something that is referenced all throughout history since Greek times when it was invented. In a similar way, the book is secret knowledge. It's the opposite of that. It's meant to be concealed and if you choose to break out out of that pattern and steal that information, you are doing a disservice to yourself, to your DM, to your game, and to all the other players. And that sucks. Don't do that. It's a crappy thing to do. 
Whew. Okay, so now that that rant's out of the way, I do want to point out a couple of instances where metagaming is explicitly bad within role-playing, because there are some examples of that, and we'd like to discuss how to deal with those. One example that Jeremy brought up when we were discussing this episode is blatantly suicidal player characters, often ones who are doing it explicitly to disrupt the game. Now, I once had a player who didn't want to play in a game anymore. It was back when I was in high school, and I can understand. Sometimes a game isn't interesting to you, and you need to bow out. Sometimes personal issues come up, and you need to leave the game. Handle that outside of the game, and don't disrupt everyone else's fun by having your character headbutt a cactus monster until they die. Don't have your character dive into the bottom of a pit because, oh, well, I'm fairly certain there's illusionary water at the bottom. Let's be fair about one thing here. I hear people say a lot that it's ridiculous for your character to take certain risks because it's blatantly suicidal behavior. Having said that, to some degree, we do play games to be able to play characters who do things we wouldn't do. And that can include having irrationally great levels of bravado or choosing to engage in self-destructive behavior that we ourselves would shun or eschew. And that's good. That's actually part of what makes role-playing interesting. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the disruptive behavior of abandoning the idea of your character's self-preservation or some basic fact about your character. That's bad. That's what we're complaining about here. Another example of metagame behavior that can be a problem is bringing things from outside the game into the game. Two big examples of this are grudges and debts. When we talk about grudges, we're talking about people who have some sort of argument or dispute outside the game. When we come together to play games, we are typically doing it as a way of putting our lives aside and playing through an experience, enjoying the time with our friends and what we are doing. And big part of that means that we're leaving our baggage at the door. We're trying to bring ourselves into this game to have an enjoyable experience that we can engage with emotionally without feeling the need to take the whole world into it with us. A big part of that is leaving these sorts of things out of the game. So don't bring your grudges to the table. If you have an argument or a dispute with another player outside the game, don't use excuses to screw over their character in the game. I might even argue that it could be appropriate to try to use the game and your ability to work together within it as an opportunity to reconcile outside the game, which you can do. You can find ways to bring that experience out of the game with you and to grow and learn through it. But that's still not the point. That's not why we're doing this. What we actually want to do is just have an enjoyable time with our friends and doing something. The other form of this is paying debts within a game. I once, when I ran a a secret D&D game back when I was in my extremely conservative homeschool group and we had to do that all, you know, under covers. One of the players inexplicably opted to have his character give a magic dagger to another character. And I was baffled by this because that dagger was very useful to him. He'd used it on several occasions. And finally, I just straight up asked, why did you guys do that? And he admitted that outside of the game, they owed a debt and that this was an agreed upon way of paying that debt. Please don't do this. It 
really takes away from the experience of the game and from the characterization within the game. And it means that all of your activities outside the game are now influences on the game in a way that's not intended. It's not the purpose of the game. Having said that, I really can't and don't want to police the behavior of characters in this way. I don't want to tell you, you can't make those decisions. I'm just expressing why I think that that is a problem. Speaking of bringing things from outside the game into the game, there is one more issue that happens. If two players are in a relationship together, or if a player and and the DM are in a relationship together, sometimes favoritism can happen. Uh, This is often colloquially known as the girlfriend problem, which I really hate that phrase. Yeah, but we do have to admit and recognize that our hobby has been, you know, inundated with misogyny for a long time and that uh, some of that has carried over. So I accept the fact that in most cases it is in fact the girlfriend problem. And that's why we've gotten this terminology with the girlfriend problem or a girlfriend bonus sometimes. So yeah, the significant other problem. With the significant other problem, a player will favor their significant other by feeding them little bits of information, telling them what to do, or in worst case scenario, the DM giving their significant other major bonuses that other people in the game wouldn't get. It's important to note that this is really a way of cheating that player out of an authentic game experience. I mean, in the best case scenario, they might be pleased to always be succeeding and to be cakewalking their way through all the situations. But honestly, that's not really the point of a game. The point of a game isn't to cakewalk your way through a bunch of situations and to succeed completely based on the merits of your external relationships rather than the enjoyable qualities of the game itself. The point of the game is to engage with the game and to play an authentic game of Dungeons and Dragons or Chronicles of Darkness or whatever it is you're playing. I've run a lot of games that have involved my wife and previously fiance and previous to that girlfriend. And one of the things I've always strived for is to treat her like every other player within the context of this game. To me, that's important not just because it's fair to the other players at the table, but because it's fair to her. Because what makes games great is a lot of times the experience of playing on a fair field and overcoming difficulty. So outside of role-playing, metagaming is actually considered a very good thing to do and is a true form and it is often what separates novices from masters at games. In classic games, a lot of older games, the metagame is the game. In chess, after you've learned the basics of how things go, you're often learning full move patterns and different end games and whatnot, and learning how your opponent implements different moves in his game. Similarly, Go, Bridge, Euchre, these are all games with known strategies that everybody adheres to to some degree or another. Some games like Go are still being explored, like players still come up with new and novel strategies, things that are brilliant and cool and great ways to do things. But Risk and Euchre, for example, like in Risk, what's the what's the uh, metagame strategy everyone plays, everyone knows it, it's 100%. 
grab Australia and hole up there, and eventually you'll be able to expand out. Yep, and never attempt to land war in Asia. But <laughs> I'm fairly certain a prominent Sicilian told me that. And, of course, everyone knows that the metagame in Bridge is you only ever bid three bridges when your partner is bidding four. That way you have the combined total of seven bridges, which is how many is needed to take New York. I don't know how to play bridge. (laughs) Euchre, uh, which is a Midwest favorite, of course, is so well analyzed that even casual players tend to know at least several, if not all, of the metagame ideas behind it. Things like never lead with a bower unless you have the other bower and things like that because you're not allowed to discuss the game with your partner. And we were actually talking about how people we've known who've had like Euchre Nights tend to use it as an opportunity to socialize while they almost mechanically play this game that they've just got like an inherent understanding of now that it's just something that they play by rote and use as a backdrop for their socialization which is really cool and one of the great things about games and why it is in fact a midwest favorite because everyone i've known who takes euchre seriously plays like that so every game especially newer games kind of goes through this same cycle when it develops its metagame. First, you test out different strategies in an intuitive manner. Well, this is a fantasy game, so I'm going to play a character with a sword and a shield. See how well that works. Right. Now you try to get creative within the confines of the game. You say to yourself, well, what if I did away with the sword entirely and just used a shield? Is that a viable strategy? What if I used a spiked chain instead? You start looking at the obscure choices and asking yourself why someone might pick that. You try to shoehorn in anything that might change the assumptions of the game and eventually you tend to come up with strategies that while unconventional do extremely well in the board game five tribes there is a strategy where you don't use camels at all this isn't intuitive to the game it it feels wrong but it's a pretty good strategy in seven wonders if you're playing with people who don't know the power of science You can easily run away with the game. But once you are playing with people who know about the power of science, completely ignore it. It will be nothing but a point sink for you. Yeah, that was that was a thing that we had like the first few times we played uh, Seven Wonders is that the player who got a bunch of science would creep just ahead of everyone else. And until we all ignored science and only one player focused on science, that's when we really realized that, holy crap, it's something you absolutely have to deal with within the game. Meanwhile, the meta strategy of going all in on war seems to always be a failing or at least subpar strategy. It never seems to be the best strategy choice. It's just something that you can do as a way to get some points. And that's how you test out these strategies. And that's the next step is that you refine those meta strategies. You start trying to see what makes them break, what allows you to make them more powerful or to refine them to the point where they are the best example of that meta strategy. And then there's kind of an optional fourth step to this metagame strategy, and that is adjusting the game to address a given metagame strategy. Now we're going to talk a bit about Magic the Gathering, a game which has one of the most robust metagames out of any game that I can currently think of. So Magic the Gathering has a metagame in multiple ways. First of all, in any tournament environment, players can have a sideboard which includes cards that they think will help deal with 
decks that might show up. Once a certain tournament scene is known, some decks will become more prevalent and people will need more or better cards in their sideboard to deal with this popular powerful deck. Outside of specific tournaments, though, Wizards of the Coast has a banned and restricted list, a list of cards that are either too powerful or unfun and are just unhealthy for the game that you cannot play in your deck. I'd like to note that that second part's actually very important, that even within the context of tournaments, it's no fun if everyone is running the exact same deck. Wizards of the Coast recognizes this very strongly, and while there's a lot of criticism I can levy against them, I don't think the banned and restricted list is an example of something criticism-worthy, because... It is an awesome tool for allowing them to single out things that have made the game unfun and unenjoyable. For example, certain cards used to be what are called manual dexterity cards. You would actually flip them physically on the table. These are obnoxious because they're adding an element to a game that was never intended to be part of the game. It's mostly a cerebral game where you are just trying to outwit your opponent. There's no reflexes involved. There's nothing beyond the recognition that you have to follow the protocols of the game. Another example was the card Scheherazade from the Arabian Nights expansion, which is banned in all formats, to my knowledge. There may be a new format where it's not, but anyway. Scheherazade would cause you to play a sub-game of Magic the Gathering using the remainder of your library, so you'd start a new game, and at the end of that game, you would have penalties in your current game for losing that game. I think it was half your life or ten life or something like that. The point being that this is obnoxious. It wastes time. It's not what you signed up for when you started playing Magic the Gathering. It's not enjoyable. And that is a reasonable cause to ban it. On top of that, it's a great way to sink time if you're on the second game of the match and you've already won your first game, so you're guaranteed a victory if you run out the clock. And I hate running out the clock strategies. I think they're obnoxious. I wish people would stop doing them forever. And I accept any step trying to take them away as being a good thing. The banned and restricted list is constantly in flux. In modern, they will often unrestrict cards that were a problem in the past, but they are reintroducing into the current meta to try and shake things up. Even Standard has a list of banned and restricted cards. Of the hundreds of cards currently available in Standard, four of them are completely banned. Uh, what is it? Field of the Dead, Oko, Thief of Crowns, Once Upon a Time, and Veil of Summer. I totally knew those off the top of my head and didn't look them up on my phone or anything. <laughs> right, right. Just like I know off the top of my head what all of those cards do and don't have to look it up in order to figure out what you're even talking about. Having said that, another thing that helps shake up the metagame of Magic the Gathering is the fact that the game is constantly in flux. Not only are new expansions always being released on an incredibly re regular basis with robust new effects that change the game in extremely tangible ways that cause everything previous to be reconsidered in the light of that. But on top of that, the game's rules themselves can change periodically in ways that might influence your decisions. Uh, one change that had very little impact, for example, was the removal of the mana burn rule. That didn't do much of anything. Changes the legend rule, likewise, did change how people approached the game, but not in as many ways as were expected. 
expected. The introduction of Planeswalkers several years back was a game changer as well. They've also reintroduced old concepts to the game. One notable one I remember specifically from when I actively played Magic the Gathering was Cold Snap bringing back the snow-covered lands and things like that, which changed your approach to mana and gave you a lot of uh, leeway to play around with that. It was an interesting time, and it's always an interesting time when they make these changes to the game, and I look forward to any game that continues to make changes in these ways to address these metagame issues. Now, a lot of people will talk about the metagame in reference to tournament environments, to incredibly competitive environments. But what if you're just playing games casually? I mean, there's really not a metagame when you're playing just among friends, is there? <laughs> that is where you are wrong, sir. There is a robust metagame in every group of friends. A big thing is that we all have names for these metagames and such. The things that we recognize within our friends groups, within our gaming groups, within our local groups. Things that we know. As an example, we all have that one friend who isn't necessarily super trustworthy in competitive games where you can sometimes team up for benefit. We all know that one person who will immediately stab you in the back as soon as it's advantageous for them. Well, if you play with them, you might not want to make, <clears throat> make alliances with that player. It's also well known that in social deduction games, that after your first game, if you play subsequent games... Sometimes there'll be that thought of, well, you were evil last game, and you were very dodgy, and you're still acting dodgy. Are you still evil? Uh, someone once told me that social deduction games are a great way to find out how your friends lie, and that is actually an example of a metagame. If you know what someone's tells are, or what they do when they're in an uncomfortable situation, you more and more become capable of seeing through their lies. It's why after a while, the games tend to shift from being games where predominantly the lying players will win to games where predominantly the truthful players will win. And I've seen that shift in our play with, for example, Avalon and Werewolf. Uh, for a long time at the very beginning, the Werewolves or Knights of Mordred routinely won. Like, we always expected it. In, if you were on that team, you felt like you were in a strong position. And since we've played those games more and more, after a while, we saw it shift the other way, where the truthful players were more likely to win because we were able to quickly suss out who was lying and rely on strategies that allowed us to exclude the liars. And that's a big part of those games, is that experience of growth within your group. And the more you play any game iteratively, the more you begin to recognize and anticipate the strategies that your opponents will use, not only within that game, but within other games they play. If someone, for example, is very comfortable backstabbing you in one game, it's very likely that in other games they're going to backstab you. The biggest thing that we can say about playing games in your casual group of friends, though, is even if you've developed this great metagame, and even if you know that this player will always win and you need to dogpile on them, don't make the game unfun for them. I mean, we should all remember Wheaton's Law. Don't be a dick. Developing a metagame 
within your group is actually a very natural thing that's very enjoyable. And uh, one other great example of metagaming within a group that could be a good thing is I have two players I routinely roleplay with who when they build their characters, they take the approach of what is everyone else playing and what can I do synergistically with that. As a great example, if the party has already gotten a wizard and a fighter, that player might choose to play a support role like a cleric or bard or something that has a utility box like a rogue, you know, something that fills the gap in the party. These players not only enjoy doing this, but they're very good at it and that gives a lot to the group in a good way. And it's unquestionably a meta strategy and not just a meta strategy, but a meta strategy within a role-playing game where we tend to think of metagaming as a bad thing. And I think that this is arguably the single best example of positive metagaming that I have ever encountered. It's a great opportunity for the player's to cooperate outside the game in a way that increases the benefits of the game for everyone. I think that's a beautiful thing, and I think that we could use a lot more of that. So, that was our episode on metagaming. What do we have up next? We'd like to do a two-parter on one of the most popular war games in history, the Warhammer series of games. Our first part is going to be us discussing the hobby aspect of the game, which is mostly going to revolve around things like making terrain, building miniatures, and actually considering the aesthetics and presentation of the game. And then after that, we're going to discuss the actual game and what it is that makes it an enduring example of a war game that's not only approachable, but also generally enjoyable, as well as gripe about the things that tick us off about it. So, once again, this has been Save versus Rant. Thank you very much for listening. Tennis is mostly mental. Of course, you must have a lot of physical skill, but you can't play tennis well and not be a good thinker. You win or lose the match before you even go out there. Venus Williams. Save versus Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at savevsrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.